0: This podcast is brought to you by the Alma and Scientific Canada. It was recorded on the traditional territories shared between the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe nations. Enjoy! I feel like I just butchered that again, even though we we just had the conversation. My
1: research on (laughs) Uh, light
0: adaptation in the the fish right now. I'm sitting in a kiddie pool actually, it's uh, it's quite nice. (laughs) Oh, that would be great. But it's oh, a, not very professional. I think so.
1: What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Alma Mac here on 93.3 CFMU or wherever you're listening to this podcast. We are happy to have you. As you know, the Alma Mac here, we like to feature McMaster graduate students, their research, and what they enjoy doing inside and outside of the academic setting. Uh, So, the ALAMAC is pleased to welcome fifth-year PhD candidate Rodrigo Nero-Perez, who is doing his graduate work in Earth and Environmental Sciences under the Faculty of Science. How are things going today, Rodrigo?
0: I'm doing well. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for the invitation. Happy to be here. I think now five years since I was in a CFMU show I had back in the day when I was in, involved in the McMaster Students Union. I was a like I was guest of the show MSU and U, So it's been a while. So happy to be back.
1: Oh, that's awesome! I didn't even know about that MSU and U. And you were a guest on that, or did you host it? Well,
0: I was, uh, it was the VP admin and the VP finance who were like the co-hosts, but I tried to be as often, like to come as often, and I always say I'm co host but (laughs) uh, my friends say I was not because I was officially not, but I'm like, you know, who's keeping track?
1: Who's who's keeping track? You just got to have it in your heart. That's it. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome to hear, Rodrigo. Um, And I'd love to learn more about that, but if we can start off first, if you want to talk a little bit about your graduate research.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I, like um, I was mentioned, I'm doing my PhD in uh, Earth and Environmental Sciences under the supervision of Dr. Carolyn Isles, um, where we're, I'm part of the Glacial Sedimentology Lab, where we look at you know uh, modern and past glaciated environments to try to understand how landscape and the Earth has surfaces change as well as to better understand climate change. Some of the work that I'm doing in particular is looking at glacial hazards. So that's talking about any type of natural disaster that can occur due to um, being in a glaciated environment. And in particular, I look at glacial floods. So. One of the things that you might know, you know, and we see it all over the media or, you know, depending on what kind of background in science you may have, you know, how climate change is impacting glacial retreat. And one of the things that sometimes people don't really... Really think about is in many mountains where does all that water come from go for uh, go and you know sometimes we think it just goes immediately to the ocean and actually that's not the case a lot of it is ponds right in front of the glacier actually and you're creating these huge glacial lakes that are held up by something that we call moraines which are just think of very loose rocks and sediments and they're natural dams but they're very unstable and anything can trigger them to fail such as earthquakes heavy rain avalanches and particularly in mountainous environments that happens quite often that can create big waves in these glacial lakes that will create the marine to fail and that creates what the technical term is glacial lake outburst flood or gloves and you know in many of these communities you have people living right next to the glacier or that rely on the water and you can have floods that have you know thousands uh, sorry millions of cubic squares of just combination of mud Rocks, water, and ice, and unfortunately, they do kill people. Um, where I'm, I'm from, Peru, and I'm glad to be doing my research there. And you know, Peru is a country that has experienced the most loss uh, related to glacial disasters And in the last 80 years. Over 50,000 people have died due to floods like this. So there's a lot of the human value to study that. Uh, so what we really do in trying to understand that is, like I mentioned, those moraines are made up of just rocks sand, gravels, just a, just a mess inside that's been pushed or squeezed by the glaciers and you know they've created this little landform. And you know we, we know that it's really important to understand the composition inside of this moraines, but there's really few studies that have done that. So what I've done and throughout my PhD work is try to understand the internal structure of this moraines. And from that analysis we can really identify areas that are weak. To like um, to instability, who anything can happen it will trigger them, or areas that are very strong and areas that we don't have to worry about that any type of earthquake or whatnot will trigger it to fail. And through that, we can then inform you know engineers and geological engineers that maybe this is an area that you need to do some remediation work to strengthen it to put things you know as simple as concrete but to ensure that the marine doesn't fail. So that's um, what me, uh, most of my research has been doing and I'm pretty lucky that I get to do it in the Cordillera Blanca. It's in Northern Peru. I know when people hear Peru, they often think of Machu Picchu and Instagram and all that, but you know, the, the country's vast and I encourage everyone to visit more than just Machu Picchu when they go there. So this is in Northern Peru. It's about eight hours North of Lima and uh, it's the area where you have the most tropical glaciers. And again, it's sort of like, you know, people always think tropical environments of America, people don't really picture glaciers, but exactly. just uh, you think about, you we have a, this really beautiful area that in Spanish, Cordillera Blanca means white mountain range. So unfortunately, uh, you know, uh, estimates and a lot of climate modeling says that in, you know, by the turn of the century, that this mountain range will not longer be black, uh, white, sorry, but um, completely gone, the glaciers will be gone. So it's a lot of, um, it's, an, it's interesting, right? When we talk about climate change, I know a lot of people think about how to stop it, what we can do. And the reality is that for many areas in the world, the change is well underway. Now we're thinking about remediation. How do we prevent natural disasters such as the floods? Or, you know, it's how do we ensure that the people who live around this environments have a chance for survival and success? ones those changes come from. So I know for us, uh, I think you're in Southern Ontario too, like, you know, we think about climate change and yeah, sometimes like Ontario will have high water levels and we can't go to waterfront or there's a lot of heavy rain. And those are things that we we can deal with, uh, even though, you know, it still feels weird that things are changing. A lot of places in the Global South don't get that privilege to, you know, be okay with climate changes that they're those changes will really affect their livelihoods. So if there's something that, you know, I'm just a small, 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 small piece in this, you know, uh, research and active work that is being done to really understand climate change in areas in the global south.
1: Yeah, Th- thanks for sharing all that. Um, and I like how you specifically, you mentioned that you're uh, focused on um I guess the uh, glacial flooding hazards that may occur because there's a lot of um, hazards that may occur whether it's uh, flooding, how the water quality may be impacted, agriculture. But I guess when it comes to glacial flooding, I think I was reading a statistic that nearly half of the population lives within 100 kilometers of a coastline um, and how you specifically mentioned about the human impact uh, that occurs and the number of deaths that have, have occurred uh, due to flooding. So. Um, it's certainly great to see the, the impact that your research is having. I'm, I'm a bit, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to know more about how you look at the sedimentology of these moraines that you mentioned, like inside the debris. So you said that maybe there are some areas that may not need remediation and then others you can inform engineers say, hey, okay, let's, we need to do careful surveillance of these areas. So how do you specifically look um, at that sedimentology?
0: Right, so I mean, sedimentology is a very interesting and I think it's a very unique uh, area within geology and even other areas, uh, right? Like a lot of what we do is field observation and we collect that in the field. So I know when I'm talking to a lot of like, like friends and peers who are in grad school and science and you know, like a lot of the stuff gets done in the lab. Like, you know, we, we call ourselves a lab, but it's just computers and stuff where we analyze our data that we've brought from the field so there that itself is very different from what a lot of people would you know would do um and when it comes to sedimentology we, we look at you know the basic premise of sedimentology is that you have different you know very technical grain sizes of sediment so sediment is just broken rocks or organic material and you classify them based on the size of them everything from clay which is very 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 small in the millimeter scale to silt, sands, gravels, and boulders, right? And we look at what are the processes that have brought those sediments to a specific place? So how have they been transported and deposited? And by looking at that, there's very, what we call like energy levels. So when we think about, you know, silt or sand, and when you look at a river or a lake that's very muddy, you know, that is very calm water that gets deposited very, very, through suspension, right? Like the, the clay just slowly over time, just goes to the bottom. When we're looking at sands, whether that's a beach or a river, you know, there's, you start looking at, there's more energy levels. So you And when we're looking at boulders, really high rapid rivers, those are sort of the things where you were looking at to be deposited. So we work on this premise that sediment has been deposited and it looks the way it does, based on a variety of different processes that have occurred in the past or are currently occurring. So, when we're looking at, you know, the marine, like I mentioned, it's been deposited by glaciers. There's been a lot of things. So, we look at, okay, we have a lot of gravel with some sand. What are the processes that deposited that? And within that, we can also look at, so we look at all the different types of Semen- sorry. So, uh, how much it's been cemented, what kind of um, processes can that, and then we start inferring some of the characteristics within, you know, a specific part of a moraine that can tell us, okay, what is the sediment size? What is the grain size? And what does that tell us about how, for example, water can flow through? So we, for a lot of people who work with water, we look at hydraulic conductivity, which tells you what is that? It's a measurement that tells you how easy or what's the ease in which water can flow through the sediments, right? Cause there's water moves throughout the subsurface and that's how we get groundwater and whatnot. You know, so for this moraines, we're looking at, you know, basing on what we know about grain size, about the processes, what's kind of the hydraulic conductivity that can be there. And through that, we can start thinking about, okay, if it's lo- really high hydraulic conductivity, you have a really big grain size. Uh, first, you know, there was a lot of energy that created this, but second, if water is constantly going through it, you're going to get seepage, you're going to get really Mm. fine water that's going to get, you know, taken out by the water that's flowing, it's going to be very weak in structure, uh, you know, and, you know, anything can trigger it. And if you have something that is of low hydraulic conductivity, It's something that really is probably fine grain in nature, is very cemented, and water has a hard time. And when water has a hard time to like flow through it, it is much more stable and there's higher areas of stability. So a lot of what we do, it's actually something people think it's weird, but it is science. It's sort of like qualitative geology, which sounds, you know, a lot of num like I know numbers and I can do numbers, but a lot of what we do is based on, field experience, and expertise, and even sedimentology is, you know, you can look at a rock and you can get two geologists coming, two sedimentologists, and they'll have two different interpretations of what's mm. going on, right? Because you're looking at your eyes and your experience. But, you know, when we come, you know, how peer research gets done, it's a lot of how are you creating your argument for your interpretation? What what are the pieces of evidence that you see in the field that led you to believe this, you know, this piece of sediment has been deposited by that, and what are some of the implications of that? So, it's very interesting because it's a lot of like argument making based on history and past studies and what you see in the field. So, it, it's a very neat area. I don't know if I could have done a, a thesis that is purely mathematical. Uh, just uh, although you know, there's different ways to, to do science, but this is something that really takes skill. I mean, for my own supervisor. You know, she goes out and she just sees rocks and just gets it. And then we look at literature there and then she just, she was right. Right. And it's a lot of like expertise in the eye and sure there's some bias, you know, there's bias everywhere, but the more you work in this area, the more you'll be able to see how things are, 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 how nature works, which is actually essentially what, you know, earth scientists are, are out doing.
1: Yeah. And Rodrigo, I'm also curious because you mentioned that um, you've worked in Peru, but uh, I also believe in uh, Southern Iceland. So I'm, I'm curious, the data that you may collect in Iceland, can it inform anything for different regions?
0: Yeah, so actually it uh, is uh, uh, one of my chapters for my thesis uh, is in Southern Iceland. It's in one of the outlet glaciers of Eyjafjallajokull, which is the, like, you know, the, Volcano that in 20 oh my goodness 11 or 12 you know, erupted, uh, interrupted. Pardon me. Um, flights all across Europe because of the plume and you know it made helmets everywhere. So it's right in that area, and I looked at this glacier Gigilco, and we collected data to actually understand uh, the composition of the lateral moraines there. And so what we do when when we're looking at geology kind of case studies, we look at specific sites and what we learned from that, and how are those places, how is the data and the conclusion from these areas can be used in other areas, right? So mm-hmm. lateral moraines, for example, it was just moraines that were in the side of a valley or a glacier, and they exist everywhere, right? And, you know, wherever you have a glacier, you're likely to have lateral moraines, but obviously because of local climate, local surface processes, local environment, things may be different, but there are some things that will be naturally the same in, you know, generalizable. So we look at different areas to then go, I'll go to Peru, which is sort of, um, if, I, if I get to do this research, um, that's what I would do. Like, look at, okay, we created this methodology in Southern Iceland. We actually used uh, drones or on, like unpiloted on aerial vehicles, UAVs, and Okay, so we have this methodology to look at the internal structure. Can it be a well? Yes, it can. It can be applied in, in, in Peru, but what are some of the similarities and differences in, that we get from those areas? So, and that can be applied, you know, in New Zealand and some of the lateral moraines and the Canadian Rockies and the Alps. It's you know generalizable, but we always are very cognizant of the local differences that will like will create different things. So, for us, we're always looking at current uh, geological processes and environments that can inform either the past or other areas around the world as well.
1: Okay, interesting. So it seems like there's a degree of universality, but you still need to acknowledge the local systems that exist and how they can um, impact the Mm -hmm. work there. Interesting. Uh, Rodrigo, I'm also interested in this, uh, what it seems like a, a new research niche that you've created for yourself, this intersection of geography with this anti racism um, pedagogical research that you've conducted. Can you speak to that a little bit?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so well, preface, and my apologies, be a little bit long. So, uh, one of the things that I've I it happened because I was I'm pretty lucky that through my research, I get to go. I mean, covid nonstanding standing to Peru two to three times a year. And like I mentioned, I was from Peru and growing up here, like you know, typical immigrant story, didn't get to go back home quite uh, at all for almost eight years. And then through this, because of, you know, NSERC. Thank you, NSERC, um, <laughs> you know, been able to fight and reconnect with who I am. I, have you know, really mastered my Spanish, you know, as a kid, you can, you know, no kid can speak any language perfectly, but, uh, I can really now say that I'm fluent, spoken, I can write professionally, all that fancy stuff, but, awesome. um, you know, it, it, you start thinking about who am I, what am I, you know, of, you know, my, my skin's Pretty brown, and you know I'm Latino. Although, you know, although my experiences are very different from Latinos or Latinx in the U.S., but you know, you, you we know what discrimination is. We know what microaggressions is, even if we don't have the way to what's us call to describe it in undergrad. There are many instances, and I don't want to go into that. That I remember feeling this isn't right, or this is just off, or what the heck just happened, and. You know, when I did geology and I did actually integrative science and earth science and, you know, you just don't have the vocabulary to to articulate what you're experiencing, right? Because, you know, I look at rocks and glaciers, what does race have to do with that? Or you're in chemistry, just mix the chemicals, don't talk about race or, you know, all those other things that sometimes we're told by, you know, professors who just need to update themselves a little bit. So. After that, I just decide, I started experiencing some things in, in grad school and in life that I was just like, this is just not right. And how do I bring, what can I personally do as an individual to, to look at race and anti-racism and how we can and like counter racism, but also how we can bring people together and experiences. I grew up in Milton when it was a very small town. It was very white and now it's a little bit more diverse but you know I still have things in my mind that I'm just like whoa 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 what just happened like I remember people calling me Mexican which you know I'm like not like one well, Peru and Mexico are so far away but like no two just like what does that imply um so I started getting involved in some of the work and learning a lot I had to read I had to and now I think people are always shocked when I tell them my PhDs in geology and not like in sociology or ethnic studies or whatnot so i had to do a lot of reading right like it's taken and i'm constantly unlearning and learning and particularly when it comes to things outside of the latin american community but um i just i knew this was something that i actually felt it fed, fed my soul like, i mean not that mm-hmm. geology doesn't feed my soul and i know many people fall in love with science but it's just what is it that's something that feels like I'm, I'm either creating a community, I'm part of a community, and a lot of that was through some of the work um, in anti-racism and racism here at MAC and particularly through R3, which is the Race, Racism and Racialization Working Group, which now I'm one of the co-conveners alongside um, Dr. Julia Daniel, who's amazing, biologist, She's, um, she has broken so many uh, ceilings here at MAC and then from Dr. Daniel Coleman and my colleague and friend Khadija Raki from the Equity Inclusion Office. So through with them it's been a, a, a journey of doing a lot of constant things here and one of the things that I've been organizing for the last couple of years is this event called um, Let's Talk About Race which is a space actually that's close to only Black, Indigenous, and racialized individuals that It doesn't happen in many universities. We just had an event who someone from York and Toronto praised what we do. And McMaster is broken in many ways. I'm not really praising it. But it's just neat to know that there are some things that are unique to us that we're doing to build community. So with that preface, I was like, well, you know, I I enjoy teaching. I really, I guess, passion from it, despite the abysmal job market. But still, I really enjoy teaching. And... I knew that when I was going to teach, I needed to correct the sense of the past, of the instructor's past. I'm like, what can I do in the classroom to actually mm-hmm. have the impact I wish I had had in undergrad. Mm-hmm. So I taught, geog- I, I was pretty lucky and in my department I've been able to teach geography of Latin America for the, for the last three years, I've taught twice. And with that, it, it, it came a lot. I was like, okay, so Latin America, it's this huge geographic region with over twenty countries, where it's as diverse as Canada. We got white Latin Americans, black Latin Americans, mixed Latin Americans, Asian Latin Americans, Muslim Latin Americans. So how can I do justice just from my own experience, right? Like I am just I was born in Peru, I'm Peruvian, I'm Catholic. So how do I bring that perspective? So did a lot of work on anti-racism pedagogies. And, you know, how we can center in particularly for uh, Latin American, black and indigenous geographies. How do I ensure that my readings are by black, indigenous or, or, or racialized women from Latin America? What are the ways in which I tell my students all the time, right? Like geography is a very, there's nothing more political than making a map. And for people in the global South, you know that. So, uh, and like, you know, voting in the U.S., which not particularly. My focus is never in the U.S. Good careless, not not good care less, but just you know, there are other areas that I would like to put my focus on, and you know, those things are very political. And I, there are people in many places, both here and elsewhere, where they will teach about the world, and they'll be the experts. And often it's a white male, and then you just believe everything they say, and they've never even stepped foot or communicated with people from those parts. So. I often, you know, I start my class and this is one of the things that we say in anti-racist pedagogy that you need to do is center yourself. Mm. And, and like, so I go like, my name Rodrigo. I was born in Peru. I can speak Spanish fluently, uh, But, you know, I'm a mixed or mestizo in from the Latin American community from one country. I cannot speak for all 20 and for all the many, many, many communities within those 20 countries and territories. But... We're going to do our best to explore the region and just know that there's no such a thing as an expert in Latin America, right? Because you cannot be an expert in 20 countries. We have experts on just Hamilton, right? Like this little tiny city in Ontario in Canada, right? Who've dedicated their lives to studying Hamilton. How could you be an expert on that many places, right? It is impossible. People have knowledge and you can speak, you know, you can do justice, but, you know, it, it, it's impossible right? Just to have you know, people are argue who dedicated their lives to studying Toronto and Canada. What makes you think that of this often white cisgender heterosexual man who's a geographer is going to be an expert in Latin America? Like, no, that does not, doesn't fly. So with that, I started thinking about what, what can I do about this experiences, and I was actually able to connect with geographer educators from the states to co-author this piece on anti-racism pedagogies and our experiences teaching geography, and I was able to publish that in the Journal of Higher Education and Geography, and now I'm doing a follow-up study that I, uh, on looking and assessing, which assessing is a, it's an interesting work on the impact of my teaching and pedagogy and anti-racism pedagogies on student learning and their perception of Latin America. So, I'm using uh, student reflections. It's an ongoing study right now. We're still collecting data Uh, on student reflections and their perceptions of Latin America. So, it'll be, you know, when we're looking at this, it's qualitative and, I mean, there's certain methodologies uh, to use, but it's you know, for many of us, and particularly racialized scholars, we know what we should say. We know what feels right, what doesn't. But one of the things that unfortunately we work with in academia is assessing of student learn. right? Like we work within this machine that's telling us how effective are you, how not effective you are. So it's something that I wanted to explore because I feel, and then, like you know, you can collaborate and other people can read the work and be like, Rodrigo, you're right, or Rodrigo, you're wrong, or Rodrigo, just a sw- just a second. Can you <laughs> go back and, and, and look at this, right? Because I think for academia, it's like once you've published, you can people can start discussing things. So it was an it's an area that in geography, in particularly, it, it's emerging in Black geographies and Indigenous geographies and Latinx geographies on anti-racism pedagogy and what we can bring. So I'm really interested in that, and you know, it all comes together with being my own identity some of the work that I do, you know, geography in the class. we talk about both physical and, and social. So uh, to me, it's all interconnected, although I still get this pushback from, you know, the academy that what I'm really doing is two separate things. And why am I focusing on glacial sedimentology but also Latin American geography? They just don't seem connected. And I'm like, well, they are, but you just can't see it. <laughs>
1: yeah. And I really like the point that you highlight, um, you know, this the power of reflection and storytelling. We know these things work, they do change and feed our soul, but then we have the systems saying, no, 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 they're not we don't think they're going to work until you prove it. You know, we need this sort of study and publish. So yeah, I find that interesting as well. Um, and I also really like the point that you mentioned um about identity, uh, right, because I was uh I was born in Pakistan, but I moved here when I was three years old. But I always felt that You know, you're not uh, Canadian enough, but you're also not Pakistani enough, so you're trying to straddle these two two cultures, uh, and it's hard because you're neither here nor there, and yeah, right now, too, I'm trying to uh, relearn my mother language because I don't speak it anymore, I just grew up speaking English, so yeah, it's... um, it's really interesting. And I'm certain that how you mentioned, uh, let's talk about race. I imagine some of these conversations may be about that straddling different identities or uh, any other issues that may, uh, that may frequent them.
0: Yeah. If I can do some plugging in, if anyone, sure. a mutualist individual listening to this and, and from McMaster, what we do is it's a combination of being in community. I've learned from, I mean, now I feel like I'm just plugging people like, but I don't know if people know from McMaster Know what Emil Joseph is from Social Work or Gina Soroski from English. As a scientist, as a geologist, I would have never met them. Like, I would have never interacted with them who are racialized scholars, teachers who do anti-racism pedagogy, who are making the way through, like, for people of color and, and, and racialized individuals. I would have never met them. Like, that alone to me has been so much... There's been so much joy and happiness on learning from them, and to an extent, I mean, they're not—they're <laughs> not Latino, Latin American. And they, you know, they're from different communities. But if anything, there's just this, okay, people can make it. And what we do, and let's talk about race. Sometimes we ta- have talks about you know, uh, like we sometimes have them on themes. Like this month, it was on um, the commemoration of the Quebec mosque Shooting from 2017, and uh, sometimes about Black History Month, but. but Honestly, people just come there and just, it's a space where we can breathe, where we can just, the white gaze is not there. And people are honest about their experiences. You know, there is still, regardless how many people say otherwise, there is still racism in the lab, in the mm-hmm. departments, in the faculties, right? And, and it's still ongoing, right? I know when people, I, I just get so frustrated when I say like, well, Black Lives Matter, they did what they have to do. And I'm like, you are so wrong. Like they're so far from the truth, right? Like they have just gotten started. Like that, the Black Lives Matter movement is it's gonna take years if not decades to unpack everything that white supremacy has done throughout every institution and way of life. So when it comes to that, we're still seeing students, staff and faculty, right? And sometimes we think just because someone, a faculty member is tenured, their lives are peachy. No, they still, hear things from their colleagues that are just, you know, whether you want to call them microaggressions or racist things, you know, the, the, the other day they've been impacting them, they can impact the morale. So it's a space where we can just come together, breathe, build community, rant, sure, but it's also cathartic. And I think those are some of the things that have, without spaces like Let's Talk About Organism, without connecting with folks, I don't think I would have been able to finish my PhD because I would mm. have given up a long time ago, right? And it has nothing to do with my supervisor who I love and is great and is a mentor, but you know, it's being able to to connect about things that you just can't with other folks. And it's not that you diminish the other folks, like I have many friends who are white, some of my bestest friends are white, but it's just being a racialized individual in academia. It's a whole other experience
1: nothing beats it when you just find somebody that gets it nothing beats that feeling
0: it's the head nods. it's the head nods when someone says right and whether it's in a live meeting or in zoom and someone says something that's both horrible and sometimes you know we pick humor on it and everyone's just like nodding right and, and we know they get it we know we've gotten those comments where are you from like you said for me people are like oh you're from Peru like I came here when I was 10 they're like your English is flawless and I was like Mm. that's not the compliment you think it is yeah right like that doesn't or or I've gotten people like you know uh oh Machu Picchu is great I'm like you are not doing yourself a favor Right? right and then there's those things that I mean not to get too emotional but I still remember there was faculty members when Trump got elected in 20 that told me aren't you glad you're in canada racism doesn't exist and your people are fine here and i was like wait what like like i'm honestly sure they're trying to make me feel better even though like didn't even bring trump whatever but it's just like this idea that why am i i mean canada is still very racist country to begin with but like why am i glad to be here right those things happen this is by a faculty member and i was just like maybe now i would have said something differently i'm like when he said that, I was like, haha, yeah, what else could I say, right? right. I'm just a student and, and it's a faculty member, but it's, yeah, it, it, it's, it's interesting. So I think for me, a lot of the stuff that we do, I mean, there are many also racialized scholars who are, uh, who, you know, are involved in both things, right? You have to be, to be able to survive. And I think it's something interesting. One of the things that I also realized in grad school, I was meant, and especially now, I have to be excellent in glacial sedimentology, but I also have to be excellent now, you know, with with calling the term EDI, which now it's being institutionalized. So now I have to be able to talk about those things, very articulate, and now I'm publishing things to even get a chance, right? And I wonder what it would have been like to be in graduate school to just focus on research, right? To never feel bad about things, to as much as I love, let's talk about race. Those are hours of the day right? Like there are only 24 hours of the day, right? Like there are only so much time that you can do. To have all that time back, right? To what would it have been like to just, you know, be oblivious to the world and just focus on research and people can, you know, publish seven papers, you know, whatever the the people are publishing. And it's something that I'm just, you know, like what is that luxury of just being an expert in your field and not having to worry about how people perceive you, not having to worry about, whether people are tokenizing you or not, or, and all that stuff, right? So it's, it's interesting. I'm just thinking about this stuff and particularly now, I'm hopefully defending soon, knock on wood and stuff, but it's sort of, yeah, it, it's an interesting journey to have gone through that in particularly McMaster and in particularly through all the times that we've been going through, right? Like I said, mm-hmm. everything, things were always worse and have always been, but you know, people like to mark Donald Trump as a well sure milestone in in that, you know, in the last five years, it's been so loaded with so many things that even now, people who are starting, you know, 20, started grad school, 20, 20, 2021. I'm like, I don't know if I could have started grad school like that. Like, I always, I always say something like keep going. I know it's tough and all that, but it's just the emotional atmosphere is so high and it continues to be high.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, Rodrigo, it seems um, just like from our small uh, interview here. It seems like you're a very busy person, and I know before too, in the little pre-interview, I was talking uh, about um, the the impact of your work and how. Uh, all the incredible things that you're doing but I am also curious outside of glacial sedimentology and the anti-racism pedagogical research that you're conducting um what are some things that you uh, enjoy doing outside of the setting
0: (laughs) well I mean actually like one of the things uh, I really like hanging out with my friends (laughs) like it's one of the like not sad stories but I love my family and I like spending time with them but when we're in Canada it's just the four of us right so after that you know i'm really envious of people even people who are immigrants who have huge families you know everyone came here their grandparents or aunts uncles nep- like cousins for us it's just my sister my mom and my dad and you know we're, we're great we're all very uh, close but you know at that point your friends become this family that you choose so i've been i'm very lucky that i'm in touch with a lot of my friends either from high school or undergrad who are like, you know, my core group of friends. And, you know, we're very social, sometimes too loud and obnoxious when we go out. But those kind of experiences of just being with friends, right? Just spending from Saturday, 5 p.m. all the way until the end of the night, just hanging out. Like to me, and to me, I also give credit without being too um, emotional. You know, being able to finish a PhD, I knew that come Friday night or Saturday night, no matter how many, how bad Monday to Friday was, I could rely on doing something, on seeing people on, they could care less about rocks, which is funny, because they're like, whenever we go, like, road trips, and I'm like, oh, my God, look at that, right? Like, I'm just pointing out at landforms of Hermitius, they're like, Rodrigo, shut up. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, I'm like, you know what? It was actually nice, because then I didn't even have to think about geology or all those things or, or talk about. So I'm really thankful for my friends. And, you know, we would do anything from going out to going hiking to... I don't know, probably just hanging out, going to the movies, things like, I mean, which now with COVID seems so surreal, but, you know, all that and a lot of dancing. I'm pretty, unfortunately, you know, you mentioned Robin Oregon. I'm very much of what, you know, there's no such thing as a stereotypical Latin American, but if there were, you know, listening to things like Shakira, dancing, salsa dancing, all those things um, are things that I unfortunately also partake in to the point that I was shocked, but not shocked, although people continue to laugh that, For, you know, the 2010s, for Spotify, said that my artist of the decade, the artist I listened to most, was, in fact, Shakira. I mean, she's great and she deserves it, but it's just those things. And after that, I mean, reading a good book, just movies, you know. I honestly like anything when it requires very little thinking of me. Hmm. If I cannot think, I am happy, (laughs) like, outside of work and I can do that.
1: No, it's nice to just come home and switch your brain off, as you mentioned, after a long, hard week. I'm with you on that one. Well, thank you so much, Rodrigo, on coming on the show today and talking about your really impactful research from all facets. Um, and we'll oh, certainly, thank you. yeah, we'll certainly put anything in the in the show notes that individuals may find helpful. Um, but thank you so much once again for taking time out of your busy day. And well, thank
0: you for thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Appreciate
1: oh, you're for, welcome.
0: You're for the welcome. Interview as well.
1: And thank you to all the listeners here on 93.3 CFMU. Thanks for tuning in every Thursday, 12 to 12.30, where we talk to graduate students. And if you're a graduate student listening, come get in contact with us and we would be happy to feature you on our show. Uh, That's it for now, folks. Have a wonderful Thursday.